If anyone's going to shatter the idea that B2B writing is boring, it's Chris Gillespie, co-founder at the B2B writing agency Fenwick. We got my favorite compliment I've ever gotten from a client, which is last night. He messaged and said, I'm in my bed doing some last minute proofreading and I'm finding myself giggling like a child reading an R.L. Stein book. This writing is fantastic. <laughs> Compliance software. Welcome to B2B Craftworks, a podcast about business writing. In this season, we're exploring power in B2B writing and how learning more about marketing and taking more responsibility for the marketing side of your writing can help you become a better writer and build a more powerful writing career. Today, we're tracking Chris's path to successful B2B writing, a path that took him from waiting tables to sales at AT&T to lead generation at Marketo, and finally to co-founding his own B2B writing agency with several full-time employees. I was waiting tables, and I knew that I had to get into a professional career. And so a friend had gone through a leadership uh, development training program through AT&T, where they moved him out to Atlanta for six months and trained him how to do telecom sales and then put him in a management role. That's where he had his first classic sales lesson, being thrown to the wolves. The first day they slap a phone book down on your desk and they say, get after it. And you just start calling random numbers for no purpose other than just to get desensitized to talk to people on the phone. That was Chris's first glimpse at the inefficiency of B2B sales and marketing. No shade to AT&T, a massively successful telecom company, but check out how they were doing sales. The sales process for Chris at the time put lots of twists and turns and roadblocks between him and the people he needed to connect with. My job uh, as a salesperson, I had 20 different systems I had to know, and most of them were DOS-based. So I had all these sticky notes with DOS commands all over my computer to figure out how to look up a customer's information. It was unbelievable. To buy anything, I had a, a technical consultant who had this Excel spreadsheet that he had built full of macros, and if you got anything wrong, the whole thing broke, and it took him several days. And so if a client said, hey, I want to price on something, he begins his several day process. And if they come back and they're like, wait, 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 we want two of those, whole thing starts again. And so what capped all of this was learning that the office that I was working out of is where Dilbert was written. But you know what they say, pain is a source of empathy. And that's a history Chris draws on to really feel for the people he's writing for. I've been running away from that ever since then. Of how do I get as far away from that world as possible? But it shows me what a lot of the, the companies that I write for, I had to live that. That was my world. And so when someone says, hey, we're still using SAP, I know exactly what that means inside of their companies that most people spend most of their time just trying to make the systems work. Calling on this personal experience, Chris and his team make sure their B2B content has the usual things like clean writing and SEO rich keywords. But what sets it apart and makes their writing truly engaging is the empathy they have to the situation. Chris has lived the experience of the person reading the content. After his stint in B2B sales, Chris moved into marketing, which is where he learned about the connection between sales and marketing. Well, the connection that should be between sales and marketing. AT&T, the marketing team, no one knew them. They were in a building somewhere where nobody understood it, and they would just pass things over to you through the CRM. And you were like, who are these people? <laughs> Why are they making my life so hard? And I eventually landed at Marketo, which is a marketing software company with a really strong marketing team. And at Marketo, it was smaller, so I got to see how this thing's actually connected. And I had always loved to write, and I studied history. And I started writing articles for the blog to support my deals. And the marketing team was really busy, and they basically handed me a pen and said, why don't you write it? And I started to, and I realized that I loved it. And so for a while there, I was writing articles to support the deals that me and the people around me were selling. And I loved that so much that after a while, I was just writing. 
If you spend a little time on the Fenwick blog, it might not surprise you to learn that writing is one of the things Chris does best. It's his power position. But you might be surprised to learn why he likes to write. I think it has a lot to do with being very worried about being misunderstood. That's probably the root of it. Being absolutely obsessive over how the communication is perceived on the other end. And that led naturally to marketing because it leads you to constantly be wondering who is the person on the other side? What are they thinking? What are their motivations? What do they actually care about to, to be able to send a message to a stranger and get them to say, hey, yeah, let's take a call. Studying words in a marketing context with a sales background, Chris has really overthought this, but it's to the benefit of his clients. It's led to interesting revelations like sender over subject line for email branding, which he turns into interesting and effective coaching for B2B technology content. A lot of marketers that we talk to want us to come in at the very last minute and rearrange the words. And that's, that's the least effective place that we can be involved because there's only so much you can do. There's only so many creative adjectives. And there's only so many things that haven't been tried already. If you step back and do the hard thing and brand yourself and have a relationship with the audience, they're going to open anything anyway. One of the ways you very quickly build trust with an audience is by knowing the lingo. It's so important for the writer to be steeped in the industry, to just know how people talk about things. So you don't get a freelancer who comes in and starts calling all your healthcare patients customers, right? Which is, yeah, technically true, but definitely not how anyone talks about it. Those little things, that's the edge where when someone reading the article sees that, they know, and that creates that connection and that trust. Whereas if you're just talking very general terms, then it's not quite the same. But let's go back to this writer at heart's first sales experience. Was it a good fit? Yeah, no, it was awful. It was the worst period of my life for at least three of the six months. It was the worst thing. When you're cold calling and you yourself believe you are bothering people, they are going to react to you believing that because you're basically telling them in all your mannerisms, I shouldn't be doing this. And so their reaction is, yeah, wait, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. And then you have a really awkward interaction. The big lesson from that is that mode of sales is predicated on the idea that you can push deals upon people. And so what I learned that that entire, that is that that is not at all how that works. This is more than a feel-good Hakuna Matata motto. What Chris is talking about is the deep psychological connection between what you believe about what you're doing and how you're perceived by other people. When you're selling your own writing, you need to be perceived as honest, confident, and helpful. Especially for those of us who fall on the more empathetic side as writers, do you really think you can do that if you hate what you're doing and you feel pushed into it? Not very well and not for long. When you finally are in sales for long enough that you start to believe that you are solving people's problems, when you've actually done it and you've had an IT manager who's like, hey, I'm going to be fired if I don't get this bill down, how do we fix this? And you sell them something that costs more but provides alternative value and in the end they keep their job. Then you carry that story with you. It becomes a pocket story and you start to internalize that belief that you're actually helping people, which is true. And then when you're calling people, you don't accept their incredulousness. You're surprised that they're surprised, right? They're like, oh, I don't need your service. And you're like, I can't imagine a world where that's true. What do you mean? Of course you need that. You just don't understand enough. Let me help you. Let's walk through this. We can get you to a better spot. And you become a lot more convincing when you internalize that. Let's reverse engineer that to help new writers understand something really important. You are not weird or wrong or not cut out for this if it feels strange to talk to potential clients. It's just that when you first start out, you don't know that you can help people yet. So it feels really odd to say that you will. But you have to do it before you can say you can do it. You have to start writing with practice blogs, 
terrible white papers and build up your portfolio. Then you can do it for clients at smaller fees, then medium fees, then larger fees. And then with those pocket stories, you get more and more sure of yourself and your ability to help, and you can move up the pricing ladder with confidence and integrity. Maybe moving up to something like Chris's pocket story, where he got banned from Reddit in about 10 minutes, but he still got the enterprise sales out of it. A client asked for a blog post. We said, we think they should be an infographic. We created the infographic. We posted it in a subreddit, which from which I was subsequently banned because you can't post your own things, like very quickly banned. But two of the like 30 or so people who upvoted it within those first couple of minutes called in and bought. Seeing stuff like that, we are like, again, we did the research. We understood exactly what they were interested in. It has that impact of creating a very few things, which is a terrible thing to tell a marketer if we're getting paid based on the word counts or the volume of things. But I like to think from a very long-term perspective, that person's going to go on to another company and they're always going to remember that we had this one engagement where they were like, yeah, it was expensive, but it literally paid for itself within the first day. And then we had that asset for two years. As much as we're focusing on the impressive outcomes here, what we want to bring attention to is that the process is very sound. It's based on what real people need to solve their real life business problems. It's not about winning the sale at any cost, which when you're a new writer can sound really inauthentic and feel just wrong. It's about making sure that you are the person who can help the most. Right now, I'm doing some writing for a client around sales strategies. And the first sales strategy that I share in the article is just declare your complete disinterest in the sale. Right up front, be like, hey, if, if you buy this and you're not happy with this, I will get dinged and I may not get promoted. I have so much writing on your success. Please don't buy unless you mean it. It really changes things. And all of a sudden people start to get a lot more honest with you. When your target customers can be honest with you, that's when you know you're creating B2B content that is not boring. People wanna know where you're coming from and they wanna know what your bias is if they don't know what your bias is, they're going to assume the worst. That's part of why branded publications have done well is they're upfront about the bias. Hey, I'm a publication run by a mattress company. <laughs> there are limitations that come with that. I'm not about to tell you you don't need a mattress. But at the same time, if you understand that bias, then I can go ahead and tell you stories and you can still trust me. We can have this interaction and it not be weird as opposed to them trying to pretend to be entirely impartial. Oversharing might be the best kept secret in B2B marketing today. If you try to present your product or your solution as a flawless, perfect thing, no one's gonna believe what you have to say. But when you're willing to disclose limitations, you're building influence by building empathy, and it also builds trust. Chris and his team have created a winning content development process that makes sure that product marketers don't have a lot of say in the final product. Product marketing people are not involved. We want you at the outset and we wanna talk about things, but it is so common for us to get to the very end of an article and we've written a story that is entirely for the audience and excites them and they are willing to share it. And the product marketing person says, well, don't admit to this fault, right? Like, yes, that's true, but don't tell people that. And they just started to scrub and censor anything that is true out of the article. And what you end up with is something that no one trusts. Chris has seen this work across different industries with different audiences and different products. Customers all want the same thing. They want something that's honest. We did a study recently with developers because we're writing for a developer platform. And one of the things that, that one of the interviewees said is that if I don't see at least one or two things that are wrong with the system in the case study, I know it was written by a marketer and I throw it out immediately. Because they're used to other developers writing in a completely unbiased way. Hey, I loved this system. I'm a huge fan. 
also this feature totally doesn't work. What's wrong with that? Will you guys please fix it? And if they don't see that dualism, they know it's just this Pollyannic, we're the best thing ever and we're going to solve everything. Please just buy us. And like, you can't, you can't trust that. Customer research isn't just about knowing what to say. It's about knowing where to say it. It's about understanding which format is going to be the most effective for the audience you want to reach. We did a research uh, study recently for uh, developer platforms, and <laughs> we asked them how they buy. And my hypothesis was we are going to land on some subreddit that, that is uh, like the nexus for all this information. And all we have to do is go there. Ends up the way uh, these developers buy is they Google things. And that shocked me. <laughs> they just Google stuff looking for very specific uh, answers to questions. And I think if you're not studying the customer and how they actually buy things, you're gonna miss stuff like that. And you're gonna assume like, hey, let's try to get on Reddit. Let's try to get on Reddit. Ends up they're not on Reddit. Or let's try to get a blog going. Let's pour all this money and resources for a very short sprint and then give up quickly afterwards and pivot to something else. As opposed to like, where did you guys find us? Oh, you heard about us on a Medium article? We should just go post media articles or comment on other people's media articles. Chris and his team are living proof of this strategy. In one campaign, they moved click-through rates from 1% to 34%, and they moved open rates from 4 to 70%. We took on rewriting uh, SDR email nurture streams for a startup that sells a storage system for all of your creative assets. So if you're Nike and you're like, where are all the pictures of this shoe? It exists across a hundred different Dropboxes and Google Drives and we just everywhere. This is like one searchable core storage tool for all your creative assets. Anyone in the company can search for it. Uh, we took the old nurture streams and we threw them out, didn't even look at them and interviewed a bunch of prospective buyers about what their day was and then explained this tool to them and had them explain it back to us and use that to then write a nurture stream that we then sent back to the interviewees and said, which of these emails do you like the best? We just put a bunch of jokes about the hard things in people's days and the, the troubles of like using the Adobe suite and don't they wish they had uh, Figma instead of XD. That was a huge success. If you're wondering why more brands aren't doing this, it's because it's really difficult. Finding a way to bring the end reader into the writing process so the end product actually resonates with them is very complicated and requires a very certain kind of expertise. I've lost so much of what it used to, to feel like to be a salesperson that I'm definitely not as good writing about sales anymore. And I have to accept that. And the only cure that I'm aware of for that is talking to people constantly. And as the beginning of every writing project, interviewing a whole bunch of customers and asking them, what do you like about companies? When you open your email right now, are there any, any emails from companies that you opened and liked? Or are there any that you really didn't like? What was your reaction to that? Can you forward those to me? Where do you get your news? Being immersed and constantly talking to the customer, you pick up those little ticks and you start to talk like them. And that's where I think the writing gets really good. When you're obsessive about your reader, the scales fall from your eyes. You start to see the weakness in the usual way of writing things, like kicking off articles and white papers for advanced audiences with a bunch of warm-up copy. If I could have one piece of advice for BD marketers, it would be never start an article with in a world of blank. That to me is the tell that a, a content marketing intern has written something, not somebody who actually has valuable information to share with me. I saw this in IT recently. The article was, I don't know about cybersecurity software, and it begins with a pitch for why the cloud is important. And to any IT manager reading that, like even if you are a large enterprise that is still 
in their digital transformation, you do not need to be pitched on why the cloud matters. And what you're looking at there is the writer explaining it to themselves. And often you can delete that first paragraph and the entire thing gets better. A lot of things get in the way of good writing. So a big part of creating empathetic content is wrangling the content process. You might not know this when you're first starting out, but one piece of content for a company could have a lot of different people involved in the creation process. That creates too much friction, just like having too many chefs in the kitchen. Here's how Chris explains it. I went camping with a bunch of friends recently, and somebody asked a question that I'd never heard before, which is, what is your camping goal? And it ends up, everyone had a completely different goal of camping. It's a very broad term. So I grew up in a household where distance is the only thing, and you go as far as you can and as hard as you can, and it's a test of physical survival. Other people were like, mm, that's really weird for me to hear. I'm really just here for the food. I hope we get to cook tonight. No two people had the same goal. And it had just never been voiced before, which helps us with the understanding of, oh, that is why that person, for me, is walking so slow. Speed is not what they're going for. It's entirely irrelevant. In fact, to them, it's sort of annoying. I start to understand my context as opposed to, this is so frustrating. Why is not everyone doing the exact same thing as me? Chris's analogy applies perfectly to the content development process today. Everyone gets together and says, great, let's make content. So one person makes an ebook, another person starts a podcast, and another person wants an article. They bring it together and they're like, oh, wow, I guess content means different things to different people. Everyone has an interest in good writing happening, yet companies are their own worst enemy, and maybe even their own worst supervillain, in that it's like, it's not your competitors that are degrading your content. It is people within the walls of the company who are making the writing less clear and more jargony and less effective. And if everyone understands that the role they can play or when they should not play a role, you get a lot more content done with a lot less effort. Seriously, I don't think any head of marketing should ever edit a blog post. If you cannot hire somebody who you trust to figure the blog out, it's anything above that is just micromanagement. But before we jump to conclusions, it's not really anyone's fault. Content marketing has been around for decades, but producing content at such an incredibly high volume is still new for many brands. No one's been trained on it. There is no process. This is not at all like engineering where people have certain frameworks for working through these things. And I've never heard of an Agile or a Scrum or something applied specifically to content marketing. And we need it because you have all these people, this is each other's job and there's no delineation that the, the journalistic editing process was grafted onto a business process underneath a branch of executive control where people are very used to this hierarchical top-down, the person at the top must be the best writer, which is not the case in most B2B. And so that's, you run into these problems. It, it hasn't been streamlined. Simple conversation of what is it we're trying to accomplish here changes almost everything. As writers get more familiar with the content development process, it's easier to play a more consultative, supportive role. And it starts by asking marketing managers why. People get so focused on producing assets and get to spend so little time thinking about why we are doing this in the first place. And if, like, if you have a, a meeting with a client and you're like, what is the end goal here? They're going to say, well, our, our quota is we need four blog posts a week and one downloadable asset. And you keep asking why until you get back to, aha, we want the reader to trust us and then move down a funnel and eventually buy. That will totally change what we do. And suddenly a quota isn't very helpful for that. What if I spend the entire week writing one blog post that shared 10 times the other blog posts? I've definitely seen single blog posts that soaked up 30 hours of the combined company's time 
And I promise you, no one read it. No one even read it. You don't have to know a lot about B2B writing to know that spending 30 hours developing a piece of content for no one to read it would be a huge disappointment. This is exactly the kind of thing an experienced B2B writer can help with. And this is what makes you more of a partner to your marketing managers. People think content marketing is about uh, quotas and it's really about people. It is about understanding the audience and what they're interested in. And when, when I see a company get that right, which is not often, it's really exciting. If you're new to B2B writing, what I hope you're feeling is inspiration. Once you have more experience, you become a resource, not just a writer. And marketing managers love that. Because while they may be the marketing experts, you become the reader expert, guiding them into better content with a better reading experience with their target audience. If you'd like to learn more about Chris and his team at Fenwick, visit fenwick.media. If you'd like to learn more about B2B writing, head to b2bwritinginstitute.com and download our new free lesson, B2B Writing in One Hour.